You are listening to WPR Wrestling Public Radio, Episode 8. Hello, and welcome to Wrestling Public Radio, the podcast for wrestling fans who don't like loud noises. I'm your host, Crystal, and I want to thank you all for your continued listenership and support. I also want to thank everyone for sticking it out as I went on hiatus to focus on obtaining my real estate license in not just one, but two states, and getting my business off the ground. If anybody ever has questions about buying or selling property, please do get in touch with me. Today's episode is sponsored by Collect and Destroy, a podcast and online toy shop based around the best toys, cartoons, video games, heavy metal, and horror. Look for Collect and Destroy on all social media and streaming platforms or visit collectxdestroy.com. On today's episode, we're going to step back into the past to learn about the life and legacy of Sylvester Ritter, better known as Junkyard Dog. Sources for today's episode include Wikipedia, an article written by The Masked Man, aka David Shoemaker, an article by J.P. Zarka, video footage from WWE via their website and the Peacock streaming app, and the WWE Superstars bio for Junkyard Dog. Sylvester Ritter was born in Wadesboro, North Carolina, on December 13, 1952. He played football for Fayetteville State University, twice earning honorable mention all-star American status. He is a member of the Sports Hall of Fame and graduated from university with a political science degree. It's alleged that he was even drafted by the Green Bay Packers. After injuries sidelined his career, however, he turned to wrestling as a career path and attained legendary status. Ritter had spent time working both Jerry Jarrett's Tennessee Territory and Stu Hart's Stampede Wrestling before settling in at Mid-South Wrestling. Mid-South Wrestling consisted of territory situated throughout Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Oklahoma. At Mid-South, Bill Watts helped him develop the persona that would make him famous. Bill Watts was a problematic racist, but the promise of money, which Ritter was sure to bring in, was enough for Watts to overlook the fact that Sylvester Ritter was a black man. Ritter was subsequently dubbed the Junkyard Dog, and pulling from his incredibly limited knowledge of black history, Watts outfitted Junkyard Dog with a literal dog collar and a cart filled with junk, which was referred to as the junk wagon, because of course that's what he would do. Prior to the 60s and the civil rights era in the United States, black wrestling was almost kept entirely separate from mainstream wrestling. As a new era was being ushered into the real world, professional wrestling also began to integrate steadily, Although there were only a small number of black wrestlers at the time, the ones that were out there were given honest opportunities in their respective territories. The likes of Bearcat Johnson, Bobo Brazil, Ernie Ladd, and Rocky Johnson, father of Dwayne The Rock Johnson, were notable black wrestlers during this period of time. Until the 60s, 
black wrestlers were always portrayed as the good guys because promoters worried that black villains would incite the white fans to riot. Suddenly, there was a new top babyface in the region. Junkyard Dog would enter the ring to the baseline of Queens, another one bites the dust. His feuds with mostly white heels quickly became the stuff of legend throughout the area. Race was an issue that immediately came to the forefront in his feuds, and the crowd fully embraced it and championed Junkyard Dog. Junkyard Dog lost many of his early matches before his character caught on and he became the top face in the company. While at the top, he had feuds with some of the top heels in Mid-South, including a now-famous angle with the fabulous Freebirds, where they blinded him with hair cream. During this feud, Junkyard Dog's wife gave birth to their first child, which became entwined in the storyline. It was explained that he could not actually see his new daughter due to the blindness from the hair cream. This development in the storyline increased the heat on the Freebirds so much that they needed police escorts in and out of arenas to maintain their own safety from fans who were upset about the situation. Junkyard Dog's long feud with Michael P.S. Hayes of the Fabulous Freebirds culminated in a blindfold and dog collar match between the two men, where both participants were blindfolded and bound together by a length of chain between two collars worn around the neck. Although I believe Junkyard Dog was technically still blinded from the hair cream incident anyway, so maybe his blindfold was a formality more than anything. Hayes, who is currently a senior producer for WWE, didn't hesitate to call Junkyard Dog boy during their feud, which has long been considered racially insensitive as it has historically been used by white folks in an attempt to exert dominance over black people by infantilizing them. When Hayes leaned into this kind of racially based taunting during his feud with Junkyard Dog, the audience responded accordingly with a chorus of boos, and Junkyard Dog reacted justifiably in the eyes of fans. Even with the chains, what Junkyard Dog did was some sort of racial stereotype act, except he flipped that stereotype on its head. By playing up the aversion inherent in racist sentiments, he succeeded in getting the audience to cheer for Junkyard Dog because he was black. His blackness, therefore, became the catalyst for the support he received from fans. The Junkyard Dog's rivalry with his former mentee, Ted DiBiase, who also happens to have been the subject of a previous episode of Wrestling Public Radio, peaked with a Loser Leaves Town match that Junkyard Dog lost. It was common in those days for the bad guy to lose this sort of match as an explanation for his real-life transition to another territory without explicitly stating the wrestler was simply moving on. When Junkyard Dog lost, though, fans were crushed. Luckily, their anguish was short-lived. Soon after, there appeared a masked man, who bore resemblance to Junkyard Dog. His physique was fairly unmistakable, except now he was going by the name of Stagger Lee. Obviously, it was Junkyard Dog in disguise, and as was expected, the crowd was thrilled. DiBiase was incensed, and the referees were oblivious 
The choice of the moniker Staggerly was particularly inspired, carrying with it strong mythic overtones. This is a passage from cultural critic and historian Grile Marcus's Mystery Train. Quote, Somewhere, sometime, a murder took place. A man called Stackily, or Stackerly, Staggerly, or Staggerly, shot a man called Billy Lyons, or Billy the Lion, or Billy the Liar. It is a story that Black America has never tired of hearing, and never stopped living out, like whites with their westerns. Locked in the images of a thousand versions of the tale is an archetype that speaks to fantasies of casual violence and violent sex, lust and hatred, ease and mastery, a fantasy of style and stepping high. At a deeper level, it is a fantasy of no limits for a people who live within a labyrinth of limits every day of their lives and who can transgress them only among themselves. It is both a portrait of that tough and vital character that everyone would like to be and just another pointless, tawdry dance of death. Billy died for a $5 Stetson hat because he beat Stagger Lee in a card game or a crap game because Stack was cheating and Billy was fool enough to call him out on it. It happened in Memphis around the turn of the century, in New Orleans in the 20s, in St. Louis in the 1880s. The style of the killing matters, though. Stagger Lee shot Billy in the words of a Johnny Cash song, just to watch him die, end quote. Over many years, and with the aid of a song recorded by countless individuals, Stagger Lee became a symbol of a black man sticking it to the white establishment that has long disempowered the black community. If you've seen the movie Black Snake Moan, Samuel L. Jackson's character also sings a version that's worth a listen. This storyline went over smashingly, even among the mostly white crowds that came out to Mid-South events. The black and white struggle paired well with the sort of David versus Goliath and good versus evil symbolism. Stagger Lee was a symbol of a man with the odds stacked against him, and just about anyone can identify with that struggle to overcome adversity, even if it's in a different form than, say, Stagger Lee's struggle. In this way, Black empowerment, under the guise of universal empowerment, became fashionable even to majority white audiences. This is especially noteworthy when you consider Marcus's theory in Mystery Train, which suggested that the mythical Stagger Lee was actually white and his victim black, and that African-American legend usurped and flipped the script. He posits, quote, so blacks might have fought back through myth, first exacting justice in song, and then wishing for freedom and mastery they could never possess, identifying with their oppressor, subsuming his image into their culture, taking his name, and sending him out to terrorize the world as one of their own. End quote. And now we have Staggerly again terrorizing the white establishment but this time via the wrestling community, 
and somehow white fans were cheering for more. He instigated his many foes until his 90-day banishment came to an end, whereupon everyone's favorite, Junkyard Dog, returned. Upon his return, he feuded with another former ally, Butch Reed, in a series of grudge matches. But considering that Reed was also black, the traditional matches were heavy laden with racial implications. The dog collar match again, of course, but also the tar and feather match and the, quote, ghetto street fight, end quote, which is a cringe turn of phrase by today's standards. They deserved better, and black wrestlers still deserve better even today. In 1984, Junkyard Dog was hired by WWF, which had begun poaching the top stars from around the country to build its roster and increase audience exposure as it aimed to become a national wrestling promotion. They were also unmistakably assembling a roster of multi-ethnic characters that relied heavily on stereotypes to differentiate each wrestler. Junkyard Dog was, without a doubt, the black guy. Similarly, Jimmy Snuka was the Pacific Island guy, Tito Santana was the Mexican guy, the Iron Sheik was the Middle Eastern guy, Mr. Fuji was the Asian guy, Nikolai Volkov was the Russian guy, Andre the Giant was the big guy, and Wendy Richter and Fabulous Moolah were the women. Rowdy Roddy Piper and Hulk Hogan were also originally cast as the Scottish and Irish guys, respectively, although their celebrity skyrocketed far beyond those parameters, especially in Hogan's case. Junkyard Dog would have almost faded among this crowd of vibrant caricatures if it weren't for his extreme popularity with fans. The man was an absolute powerhouse in the wrestling ring. He was never considered the most technical wrestler, so his WWF-era routine was reduced to punches, headbutts, and power slams that would draw audience attention. The chains and white boots from his Mid-South days survived this transition to WWF. His entrance music did as well, until years down the road when it was replaced with a new original theme sung by Junkyard Dog himself, called Grab Them Cakes. The most literal part of his junkyard persona was largely abandoned, except in Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling cartoon show, in which the stereotypes of wrestlers were played up as much as possible. In it, Junkyard Dog not only owned a junkyard, he also lived in it, and his lines included things like, That junkyard rat's been jiving with my junk again. Notably, Junkyard Dog's cartoon counterpart was voiced by the late James Avery, a.k.a. Uncle Phil, from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Junkyard Dog most notably became an idol to younger audiences, and would invite children into the ring to dance with him after matches. No one could deny that Junkyard Dog was a panderer, but he was pandering to the crowds in such an incredibly smart way. His audience interactions, signature moves, theme music, and oversized character preceded later stars like Ravishing Rick Rude and The Rock. Junkyard Dog was a visionary. 
Junkyard Dog feuded with legends like Terry Funk, Jake the Snake Roberts, adorable Adrian Adonis, and Greg Valentine. Junkyard Dog emerged from that particular racially-fueled storyline with only a moral victory against Greg Valentine. Despite his fame and despite the WWF's ethnically diverse roster at the time, it's fair to say that in his WWF period, Junkyard Dog was still very much held back. Despite whether or not the world may have been ready for a black champion at the time, the title scene was led largely by white men, particularly one named Hulk Hogan, whose status within WWF made it near impossible for other good guys of any skin color to ascend to the top for a better part of the decade. In his last high-caliber feud against the King, Harley Race, he sought to dethrone the King of the Ring. However, this somewhat lesser title remained elusive to Junkyard Dog. At their match during WrestleMania III, Junkyard Dog lost, and it was stipulated that he would have to bow to Harley Race. Yet another plain oversight as to how this could possibly be perceived as racially insensitive given the circumstances. Upon losing, however, Junkyard Dog bowed quite mockingly and proceeded to snatch up Race's robe, crown, and scepter. Another Stagger Lee moment, prime time to terrorize his opponent when they should be feeling most successful. The crowd ate it up, cheering wildly for the man who lost and was displaying quite heel behavior, and highlighting what would be a very badly missed opportunity on WWF's part. Not too long after WrestleMania III, Junkyard Dog would depart from WWF and would soon after emerge with NWA around the same time that they had rebranded themselves as WCW. There isn't much worth noting about his WCW run, aside from being a member of the Dudes with Attitudes stable, who were unabashedly against the Four Horsemen, and additionally consisted of El Gigante, Lex Luger, Paul Orndorff, Rick Steiner, Scott Steiner, and they were led by Sting. Ritter didn't stick around too long with WCW before retiring in the sense that he no longer had contractual obligations to any promotions, but took some time off and then worked indie shows at his leisure. It was in 1998 that Sylvester Ritter met his untimely fate while driving in Mississippi after his daughter's high school graduation. It's alleged that he fell asleep at the wheel and ended up flipping his car three times, tragically killing him. He was only 45 years old. If one were to sum up Junkyard Dog's career, they might view it as fraught with racial stereotypes and a battle against racism in wrestling. At no point was Junkyard Dog simply a wrestler who happened to be black. So it's fair to make that assumption. 
However, it should be paired with the fact that Sylvester Ritter connected with all fans in a way that coaxed them into supporting him because he was black and in a period of time where that was not the norm. His character in the ring made it easy for fans to open their minds and accept people who didn't look like them. And maybe that small consolation in exchange for the things he truly deserved, like a crown or a belt. But it made him relevant, and it cemented his place in the hearts of fans across the United States. He had stayed involved in wrestling up until his death. His last noted appearance was at ECW's Wrestlepalooza the month before the accident. Additional lasting contributions Sylvester Ritter made to the wrestling community were the training of both Rodney Mack and Jazz. Junkyard Dog was posthumously inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame Class of 2004. His daughter, LaToya Ritter, and his sister, Christine Woodburn, accepted the honor on his behalf. I'd like to thank you for listening to today's episode of Wrestling Public Radio. I hope each one of these episodes provides a valuable exploration into the lives and careers of not only the biggest wrestling stars, but also those lesser known to my audience or those who wrestled before us. I'm diligently working on new episodes, and I'm also working on something new that I plan to pepper in between these longer episodes that I think you all will enjoy. If you do enjoy Wrestling Public Radio and what I bring to the wrestling community, there are lots of ways to show your appreciation. Reviews, shares, and follows are always appreciated. I can be found on Twitter at WPR Media or Facebook and Instagram at Wrestling Public Radio. I also stream on Twitch most Thursday nights from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time at X the Dark Crystal X. Special thanks to both Kobe and Ryan, who recently became monthly supporters. If you're interested in becoming a monthly supporter of Wrestling Public Radio and getting your name mentioned on a future episode, check out the link in the show notes. A small monthly donation goes a long way towards sustaining this podcast. This truly is not possible without the wrestling community, and Wrestling Public Radio is so glad to be a part of it. Until next time, friend, I'll close out by thanking you one more time for joining me today as we took a closer look at Junkyard Dog's impact on pro wrestling. May his memory be a blessing to those who love him and his legacy carry on for generations to come. Join us next time for more tales of the wrestling world and how pop culture and the world around us shape storylines. This is Crystal Schmidt signing off for Wrestling Public Radio.